AJT readers, this is Josh Levitsky. I'm hosting this month's August 2020 AJT Highlights, along with my co-host, Roz Manon from University of Nebraska. Today, we have two guests. The first is Dr. Mandy Ford from Emory, who is going to be talking about actually two of her papers. We invited her because two of her articles landed in the August edition, so we're excited to have her. We also have our fellow uh, in training for a, the AJT internship, Asko Serrano, who's a transplant surgeon at Hartford Hospital in Connecticut. So welcome, you guys, and um, why don't we go over the table of contents um, for this podcast, just the, the five articles that are going to be discussed today. Just I'll read off the titles and the first author, and then we'll start talking about them. So uh, the first one would be CD11B is a novel alternate receptor for CD154 during alloimmunity by Liu et al. And that'll be discussed by Dr. Ford. The second one is memory T cell mediated rejection is mitigated by FC gamma R2B expression on CD8 positive T cells by Morris et al. Also to be reviewed by Dr. Ford. Then we'll go into a liver study, the molecular diagnosis of rejection in liver transplant biopsies. First results of the interliver study by Medill Thompson et al. And um, uh, Oscar, Dr. Serrano will be reviewing that. And then we have two infection, interesting infectious disease studies to close the podcast with. First being monitoring of CMV specific cell mediated immunity with a commercial ELISA based interferon gamma release assay and kidney transplant recipients treated with antithymocyglobulin by Fernandez Ruiz et al. And uh, Dr. Serrano will be We'll be reviewing that one, and then we'll end with Dr. Mannon presenting on torctenovirus for risk stratification of graft rejection and infection in kidney transplant recipients, a prospective observational trial by Doberer et al. All right, without further ado, um, Mandy, Dr. Ford, um, uh, how about talking about your, your first paper? And, and great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So the impetus for this project on uh, the interaction of CD154 with CD11B and its role in alloimmunity really started when I was a postdoc in Chris Larson's lab and was helping out with uh, studies of anti-CD40 monoclonal antibodies in non-human primate uh, trials of kidney and, and islet transplantation. And although the anti-CD40s are, of course, efficacious at preventing graft rejection, for the people doing these experiments, and as we would kind of talk about amongst ourselves, it was pretty clear that the anti-CD40s, and we tested uh, a few antibodies, just never seemed to work quite as well as the anti-CD154 antibody 5C8. And so it was, of course, to, uh, difficult to make any real conclusions about this at the time because these are individual reagents and these differences that we were seeing could, of course, be due to differences in affinity epitope specificity of these specific reagents. Another prevailing uh, hypothesis at the time was that the anti-CD154 monoclonals worked better because they actually targeted CD154 expressing alloreactive T cells that were targeted then for deletion by antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. So they, those alloreactive T cells were actually being deleted. 
But in we showed in a paper in 2013 um, in collaboration with Bristol Myers Squibb that an FC silent anti-CD154 worked just as well as the FC intact CD154 at preventing graft rejection, basically debunking the theory that ADCC-dependent alloreactive T-cell deletion was the mechanism of action of these anti-CD154s. And so in my mind at that time, it really renewed my interest in this kind of long percolating idea that perhaps CD154 was working better because it was inhibiting the interaction of CD154 with some other ligand other than CD40, which is of course the known um, ligand for CD154. So we had this idea, can we perform a really simple experiment to test this idea that CD154 may be binding to something else by simply asking if CD154 still works in a CD40 knockout environment. So we simply took a CD40 knockout graft, put it onto a CD40 knockout recipient, and either left the mice untreated or gave them anti-CD154. And interestingly, we found that immune activation and alloreactivity were diminished in CD40 deficient recipients of CD40 knockout grafts when they were treated with anti-CD154, thereby suggesting that anti-CD154 was in fact blocking some interaction other than CD40. So we went looking into the literature and asking around to what was known about this. And interestingly, at the same time, there was a group, Drs. Wolf and Zierlich from the University of Freiburg that had actually been working on this and published a nice paper in 2018 in Nature Communications. And their work really showed using surface plasmon resonance that anti-CD154 could in fact bind to the I domain of the CD11B molecule. And so using a peptide mimetic of this interface between CD11B and CD154 and administering this peptide mimetic, we were able to show that inhibiting this CD154, CD11B interaction synergizes with anti-CD40 therapy basically making the anti-CD40 just as good as the anti-CD154. So these data really demonstrate that blocking both interactions of, with CD40 and CD11B is required for the optimal inhibition of alloimmunity and provide the field with an explanation for why CD40 blockers may be less efficacious than anti-CD154 reagents for the inhibition of graft rejection. So, you know, I think these data have a lot of potential clinical implications, particularly for the development of the, the clinical development of anti-CD154s versus anti-CD40s for use in clinical transplantation. Clearly, there's been a lot of interest in blocking both of these molecules um, over the, of the years. However, for the last 20 years or so, there's really been a dearth in clinically viable anti-CD154 reagents in the development pipeline for transplantation. There are currently two FC-silent anti-CD154s that have recently been developed, one by BMS and one by Randy Noel's group. And they're currently being tested in autoimmunity, but to my knowledge, uh, there's no active solid organ transplant trials uh, registered with these reagents. On the other hand, anti-CD40 monoclonals are uh, progressing in the development pipeline and have entered early phase cl clinical trials in kidney transplantation. So, you know, I think the, the upshot of these studies is that ultimately, if it turns out that anti-CD154s can't be developed for technical or logistical reasons 
and that anti-CD40s are progressing nicely through the development pipeline, it may be that specific blockers of this CD154, CD11B interaction would be able to synergize or complement with anti-CD40s to develop a more efficacious immunosuppressive regimen uh, for clinical development and transplantation. Well, Mandy, yeah, that was great. I mean, just putting all this together, have you thought about, you know, CD11B is expressed on a lot of immune cells, including NK cells and macrophages. You know, have you thought about its potential for long-term engraftment in terms of antibody-mediated rejection and these other cells that get involved um, through that interaction? Yeah, it's a great question. And we tested an anti-CD11B monoclonal antibody also in this paper and found that it could do the same thing. It basically synergized with anti-CD40 to increase the efficacy. But I think your point is well taken and really inhibiting CD11B, which can bind to many other ligands other than CD154, has much is going to have much more widespread effects, particularly in terms of protective immunity, you know, inhibiting innate immune inflammation that might be really critical for, you know, just immune competence. And that's why I think inhibiting this specific interaction between anti-CD154 and CD11B using potentially this peptide mimetic or an antibody that could be developed to only inhibit that specific interaction and leave the CD11B interaction with other ligands intact would be a more um, targeted approach to better inhibit allomunity while leaving protective immunity intact. I was wondering about any concern maybe in the laboratory for thrombosis, because I know that was an issue with antibodies to CD154, but yeah, anything like that? That's a great question. We have not seen that using this peptide mimetic in mice, although you know, it really wasn't observed with the anti-CD154 monoclonals in mice either. So, so, you know, I think the jury may still be out on that. And so I think it's, you know, this pathway is sort of ripe for translation um, up into like non-human primates where we be- may be better able to ascertain and assess the, the safety profile for thromboembolic complications in those animals. Great. Great. Well, thanks. Why don't you talk about your, your second paper? Okay, great. You were busy this month. (laughs) (laughs) So this paper is on the role of a particular um, molecule, FC gamma R2B, on alloreactive memory T cells. So um, my lab has been interested for a long time in the impact of memory T cells on the risk of allograft rejection. And a previous study we have published in the lab showed that not all memory T cells pose a risk for rejection, but certainly some memory T cells do. And basically we wanted to set out to identify what are the differences between those memory T cells that posed a barrier to graft rejection and accelerated graft rejection versus those that did not in the hopes of identifying new pathways that could be used to control these quote unquote bad actors under these conditions. And so we kind of cast a very wide net, initially looked at a number of molecules. And and what I'm going to focus on today, we looked at, um, because it was previously identified by John Hardy's group in a transcriptomic uh, experiment to show that it was expressed in CD8 positive T cells. So FC gamma R2B is an inhibitory receptor 
that of course binds to FC regions. Um, it was previously well known to be expressed on B cells and innate immune cells and inhibit their activity, but was previously not known to be expressed on CDAT on T cells at all. And so because of this uh, paper, we were intrigued, could this be a T cell inhibitory pathway that has previously not been identified? And so using our previously established model, we then assessed the expression of FC-gamma-R2B on our either quote-unquote high-risk or low-risk memory T-cell populations that we had previously identified and found that the low-risk memory T-cells had higher expression of this inhibitory receptor FC-gamma-R2B. Moreover, the more FC-gamma-R2B positive memory T-cells that a mouse had, the less likely it was to experience rejection. And so at this point, I want to sort of diverge just a second and to say that, you know, we had these data and association in the mouse with, you know, FCGMR2B and rejection. But our interest in this pathway was uh, greatly magnified when we were sitting in a seminar one day being given, uh, the seminar was being given by Peter Heger, who had come to Emory to give, uh, to discuss the results of his CTOT09 clinical trial. And in which he performed transcriptomic analysis of PBMC isolated from patients that were weaned off to Crolimus immunosuppression and went on to either reject or remain stable following weaning. And he showed, uh, you know, showed up on his slides the list of the top genes that were associated with the stability of stability off to Crolimus. And immediately my grad students started texting me and we got all excited because lo and behold, one of the top hits in genes that were different between the stables and rejectors was in fact FCGMR2B. So we established a nice collaboration with his group to do a little bit more work on this and found that it was actually the FCGMR2B within CD8 T cells and not FCGMR2B on B cells or other innate immune cells that was associated with this difference between stables and rejectors in his uh, CTOT trial. So now we have this nice association uh, in the mouse and now an association between FCGMR2B expression on CD8 T cells and stability in renal transplant recipients. And so we went back to the bench um, to ask if there was actually a causal relationship present here. And so we actually um, were able to specifically knock out FCGMR2B on the T cells that are specific for the allograft, and those that are recognizing and responding to the graft. And when we did this, we observed a significant increase in the accumulation of donor reactive CD8 positive T cells and accelerated graft rejection in these animals. So these results really told us that there was a cell intrinsic, a novel cell intrinsic or cell autonomous inhibitory pathway functioning in these CD8 positive T cells that limits the risk of memory T cell mediated rejection following transplantation. So this is a really interesting new pathway by which memory T cells in particular can be regulated during transplantation. And of course, you know, where we are now is really we have more questions than answers. And I think one of the most pressing questions is, and clinically relevant questions, is what is the physiologic ligand that binds to FCGMR2B on T cells and sends that important inhibitory signal? So our recently published immunity paper, we actually asked this question and asked whether IgG was necessary for the inhibitory effect of FCGMR2B on CD8 T cells, and interestingly found that it wasn't. So it doesn't preclude a role for IgG, but it tells us that it's not 
the only ligand. And interestingly, instead, we found that the immunosuppressive cytokine fibrinogen-like 2, or FGL2, can bind to FCMR2B on CD8 T cells and induce their apoptosis. So I think the, real, the clinically relevant questions that we now need to address is how to promote this FGL2, this immunosuppressive cytokine that can turn off memory T cell responses, and also how to drive FC-gamma-R2B expression in order to make these T cells susceptible to FGL2 to be able to better control alloreactive memory T cell responses following transplantation. Mandy, that's such a great summary of uh, this. And it's always funny how a little visit by someone sort of stirs um, interest. So I was struck by that because um, it was really an editorial that Paolo Crivetti mentioned that study and where they found that. Is there, do you have any idea of how, is this true, true and unrelated? Does, Does the calcineurin inhibitors somehow regulate FC-gamma R2B? That is a great question and actually the subject of my uh, upcoming R01 proposal. Yeah, so I I think that, so that's that's actually the hypothesis that, so there's a really interesting nature paper that was published last year by Dietmars then in Vienna that showed that when T cells are exposed to less antigen, they upright during their priming, they upregulate FC-gamma-R2B. So the hypothesis would be that there's something during the exposure of these patients to either either antigen or the level or exposure to tacrolimus that may drive the ex- that expression of FC-gamma-R2B. And interestingly, the other thing in, in that patient cohort that correlated with freedom from rejection and sort of by extrapolation with FCMR2B expression was better MHC matching or better matching. So you in those patients, they may have had less antigen disparity, so less TCR stimulation, further inhibited by calcineurin inhibition that could drive this expression of FCMR2B. And that's something that we're hoping to test in the mouse you know, which we can obviously control much better and potentially in cohorts of patients that are weaned off of tacrolimus at different times during bellotacic conversion therapy. Uh, it's great. Thank you, Mandy. Um, those are, it's really exciting work and it looks like there's a lot more to do, which you're going to be applying for some more grant funding and I can really see the, uh, the translational clinical applications of your work. So th- thanks again for joining us. I think great. we're going to... Thanks so much. Appreciate it. I think we're going to move on next to a liver study. Oscar, uh, do you want to talk about the inner liver trial? Yes. uh, Thank you, Josh and Ross and uh, Mandy for having me and joining in the conversation. The first paper that I'm going to be talking about is titled The Molecular Diagnosis of Rejection in Liver Transplant Biopsies, which is uh, one of the first studies from the inter liver study. The study is published by a group of collaborators from the inter liver study. And for those that are uh, not as familiar with it, it is basically a prospective uh, observational study that is basically trying to look at the relationship of molecular phenotypes of uh, over 300 liver transplant biopsies to their histological phenotype and the clinical features and outcomes from these. So basically this study aims to utilize uh, very sophisticated molecular techniques to detect uh, rejection in liver transplant recipients. And as a way of background, the current standard of care for a diagnosis of rejection in liver transplantation is histology. 
And this is according to the BAMF criteria. However, one of the fallacies in this is that there is a lot of inter-observer variability in the diagnosis uh, as well as the prevalence of antibody-mediated rejection remains controversial. So this company uh, developed a molecular microscope diagnostic system, or MMDX, which is basically a diagnostic tool to measure gene expression using microarrays. It's been used previously in kidney, heart, and lung transplants successfully. And what they uh, basically uh, advocated for is that MMDX testing is thought to be more accurate than histology because of its use of uh, continuous quantitative measures, low sampling error, high reproducibility, and lack of requirements for specific tissue elements such as glomerulin, kidney, cortex, or portal triads, and liver. So this study basically looked at 235 biopsies that were prospectively collected from 217 liver transplant patients in 10 international se uh, centers. All, all biopsies were shipped to Alberta Transplant Applied Genomics, which is where uh, all of these analyses occur, and that's where the microarrays were constructed. What they then did is they looked at rejection-associated transcripts, or, or RATs, that were derived from kidney transplants and were had been validated in heart and lung transbronchial and mucosal biopsies. So basically, they came up with about 200 probe sets that associated with three class comparisons based on histology with, uh, with either all rejection, so either antibody-mediated, T-cell mediated, or a mixed versus everything else. So after they removed all duplicates, they had about 453 rejection-associated transcripts or RATs, and uh, some transcripts were identified by more than one algorithm that produced six classes of RATs. Uh, which basically were uh, segregated into antibody-mediated uh, selective, T-cell-mediated selective, all rejection, or a combination of those three uh, combinations. Then they did a um, principal component analysis, which was used to visualize the biopsies based on their expression patterns. And, and they looked at the expression of the uh, rejection-associated transcripts in liver, and then compare them to kidney, heart, uh, to see, um, to use it as a um, way to standardize their test. They then did another uh, sophisticated analysis called archetypal analysis, which is basically a clustering method that uh, identified uh, different phenotypes, which would, they labeled A1, A2, A3, and A4, and then assigned each biopsy a score. And then each AA was also assigned a clustered, which were sub-classified as R1, R2, R3, and R4, based on their highest archetype score, to cluster them into groups. So, and then finally, for comparison to MMDX, all biopsies were classified by the traditional histologic rejection versus no rejection, and they used basically portal, bile duct, and venous inflammation grades as either more than zero, more than one, or more than two. So in all, they had 235 biopsies from 217 patients. 170 biopsies, or 72%, were taken for actual indications, which would have been a suspicion of either rejection or some other process that was inconsistent with normal uh, clinical uh, course. It is important to note that the median uh, post-transplant time to the biopsy was 962 days, so these biopsies are almost uh, done at uh, between two and three years. 
and the technical replication of the results in a single RNA sample were processed independently by two technicians using two microarrays, which showed 99% replication. I thought this was important because it demonstrates the reproducibility and the uh, high fidelity of this uh, assay. So when they looked at uh, going through uh, the figures, when they evaluated each of the, your, their microarrays, they basically came up with clusters. And in the first figure, they're basically trying to demonstrate whether the uh, liver biopsies compared in terms of their rejection associated transcripts to the what was seen previously in the kidney and heart biopsies. And what they found is that for T-cell mediated rejection, the, um, there was a nice clustering in liver. However, what they found or what was most significant of figure one is they had found no antibody mediated uh, rejection clustering uh, in liver biopsies, which was different than uh, heart or lung. Then going through into uh, figure two, they uh, looked at the uh, rejection associated transcript expression to visualize the various biopsy groups. And they came up with the archetypal analysis came up with four different archetypes. And those were um, assigned an archetype, as I said previously, into R1, R2, R3, and R4. And uh, they were basically distributed uh, based on uh, when they were taken, according to when they were taken. So for instance, R1 was the one that demonstrated its cluster of rejection associated transcripts much later in the study. So at 2,500 days, whereas R2 and R3 happened much earlier. Uh, R2 happened at 214 days, R3 at 99 days, and R4 occurred or the expression of those genes occurred at around uh, 3,100 days. Then um, when they explored the relationship of uh, the molecular scores according to time, they, it seemed to be consistent with this analysis that I just described previously in that the R3 and R2 scores were the highest in the early biopsies and they fell steadily to uh, uh, low levels by 2,000 days, whereas the average R1 scores were initially low, but rose steadily uh, throughout to be the highest at around uh, after 1,000 days. And finally, the R4 became much more common years after transplant. Once again, going through the paper, they identified various uh, transcripts. They uh, identified for each phenotype the top 10 transcripts, and then they studied uh, correlations between the rejection archetype scores as well as the recorded histological features. And what they basically report is that in uh, R2, which is the more consistent with a T-cell mediated rejection, those were the ones that had um, a histological diagnosis that, were, that was consistent with T-cell mediated reg, uh, rejection, whereas R3 were more uh, consistent with early biopsies that were negatively correlated with clusters that included fibrosis, but more positively correlated with, for example, recurrent uh, hepatitis C. And R4 were late scores, which were basically consistent with fibrosis. They finally also uh, looked at whether these R clusters had any correlation with biochemical results, and they also found uh, significant correlations in, um, uh, in these parameters. So this paper uh, was actually very fascinating to me. It demonstrates the sophisticated uh, molecular techniques that can be used and are being pushed in terms of uh, diagnosing rejection. It's uh, the first uh, to um, develop this uh, tech 
technique and this uh, in uh, liver transplantation. And uh, they were able to uh, successfully identify different archetypes of normal uh, clusters of genes, T cell mediated genes, injury or late injury uh, in these biopsies. I, I thought the paper was excellent, just a bit uh, technical. And so it takes a little bit of time in, in understanding it. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think um, mechanistically really fascinating and, and comparing to other grafts using kind of the same methodology is really powerful. I, I wonder if uh, you had some thoughts on the clinical relevance. You know, I, traditionally, the main issue had for, for, for doing these, this type of work was to, histologically, was to distinguish hep C from rejection. And now that we no longer have that problem, um, and it's just kind of back to rejection versus other causes. Do you think that <clears throat> this will help us clinically with diagnosing or managing rejection or what more do, what more do we need uh, to, you know, apply this to patients? Sure. No, I, I this is a, an excellent question. And I think the fascinating part about this is, is that this is just uh, one of the first studies to look into this. I think the fact that they were able to separate into the different clusters uh, to look at late uh, rejection or fibrosis versus early versus uh, an ischemic injury from a fresh transplant, I think they're going to get more sophisticated and, and eventually we will be able to uh, perform the molecular medicine that we keep talking about to, mm -hmm. to, to basically get this to a, a more perfected post-transplant uh, outcome for um, many of our transplants. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think particularly where histologic criteria become a little more fuzzy the further you get out from transplant. And it was a little disappointing that they weren't able to find AMR-associated transcripts because um, that would have been more exciting, but maybe they just need a larger number of patients with diagnosed AMR that, you know, to include in, into their cohort to, um, you know, because they, there that diagnosis, especially chronic, is can be a little fuzzy late and a molecular diagnosis would really help. Right. Um, but nevertheless, I agree. It's, it's, a, it's kind of the first study of its kind. I think a lot more to come from, from that group. Great. Well, do you want to just uh, quickly talk about the, uh, I guess we have two ID papers now. So we'll just continue with you, Oscar, um, with the CMV study. Absolutely. So this second paper uh, demonstrates a, a much more practical bench science technique to detect uh, CMV immunity. Uh, the title of the paper is Monitoring of CMV-Specific Cell-Mediated Immunity with a Commercial ELISA-Based Interferon Gamma Release Assay in Kidney Transplant Recipients Treated with Antithymocyte Globulin. This is a paper that comes out of uh, Madrid, Spain by uh, Mario Fernandez Ruiz et al. And uh, as we all know, cytomegalovirus is one of the leading causes of uh, opportunistic infections in solid organ uh, transplant recipients. It's thought that uh, CMV-specific cell-mediated immunity uh, is protective uh, amongst CMV zero-positive recipients. And, and this is particularly important. This is why this paper was unique, because now that we are using more T-cell-depleting agents, such as rabbit antithymocyte globulin or thymoglobulin, that this is considered to be a risk factor for CMV reactivation after solid organ transplantation. And uh, it is also known that some of the lymphocyte depleting effects of uh, antithymocyte globulin 
occur up to a year after transplant. So currently, clinical practice guidelines uh, advocate for the use of preferably Valgan cyclovir for about three to six months in CMV seropositive kidney transplant recipients that were treated with uh, ATG or other T-cell depleting agents uh, for induction. And some recipients uh, show protective responses early after transplantation that could potentially say, uh, safely discontinue Valgan cyclovir with benefits in terms of uh, drug-related toxicity, cost, whereas uh, if um, cell-mediated, I'm, I'm sorry, whereas if cell-mediated immunity in for CM, against CMV is not demonstrated, they should receive a longer course of prophylaxis. So they looked at adult kidney transplant recipients that were performed over a three-year period at uh, their hospital in Madrid, Spain. This was a single institution and they basically included patients that were CMV seropositive at baseline, so are uh, positive, and those that received induction therapy with ATG. So the patients were enrolled at the time of their transplant, and they were followed for at least a year uh, unless uh, they suffered a graft loss or the patient uh, died early. So all patients that were treated with uh, ATG induction uh, received uh, antiviral prophylaxis with valgancyclovir, nine, nine, 900 milligrams daily uh, adjusted for renal function, which is a standard dose for about three months. And thereafter, patients were uh, managed with either preemptive therapy or uh, IV gancyclovir or oral valgancyclovir uh, uh, twice daily if uh, there was asymptomatic CMV viremia. So, what they did in this particular study is they monitored the cell-mediated immunity to CMV using quantiferon CMV assay in their study population. And they did this over the course of various time points, but at least at month two, three, four, and five, uh, in order to encompass the time that valgancyclovir was discontinued. So in all, they had 120 kidney transplant recipients their mean follow-up was about 351 days, so about a year. The one-year death sensor graft survival and patient survival was uh, uh, adequate. It was about 94%, 95%, which is appropriate for European cohort. The median uh, duration of uh, valgancyclovir prophylaxis was about 92 days, so the three months that they talked about. And the median number of monitoring points for CMV viremia was nine. So the, um, they also, one of the things that they looked at was because they were concerned about the T cell depleting effects that were exerted by uh, the thymoglobulin, they looked at the total number of CD4 and CD8 uh, T cell counts, which they, they reported dropped at post-transplant month number one, and they progressively increased over the next month. Uh, they did note that the CD4 subset was more protracted, the recovery of it, so the CD4, uh, CD8 ratio had decreased from month one to month 12, and this was a statistically significant uh, finding. In this cohort, 50 patients, or about 42% experience, at least one documented episode of CMV infection. And uh, regarding their uh, study outcome, 47 of these patients had CMV infection just after uh, the discontinuation of valgancyclovir at an average of about 54 days after. So once they looked at um, the cell-mediated immunity, which was assessed by the quantiferon CMV assay, they had uh, 362 uh, distinct monitoring points, and their uh, results for the assay was 73% uh, reactive, 
25% non-reactive and 2% indeterminate. The proportion of patients with a reactive, non-reactive and indeterminate assay was shown in figure one very nicely. And they also note that this uh, rate of positivity increased from 62.5% to about 76% at month five. So one fifth of their patient population, so about 17.5% uh, had persistently negative results throughout the entire follow-up. This group was obviously less likely to receive a CMV zero positive donor. So getting to the um, meat of the paper, by basically using a cutoff value that has been proposed by the manufacturer, which was an interferon gamma level uh, greater than 0.2 international units per mil, their positivity rate was around 73%, uh, and uh, uh, their negative rate was about 26%, which gave them a sensitivity and specificity of around 77 and 34% respectively, with a positive predictive value of 64%. So this. This was not uh, very good. So what they did in this study then, they looked at uh, various other groups that had published on this and they basically lowered the threshold to by half. So instead of 0.2 uh, international units per mil, they lowered it down to 0.1 and they found that their um, sensitivity uh, increased slightly uh, to 83% and their uh, uh, positive predictive value to 65%. Uh, although not statistically significant. Finally, they looked at a different uh, Yaudinson index and they increased their um, cutoff value significantly to 1.13 international units per mil. And again, they saw that um, their, spec their specificity had uh, increased, but their positive predictive uh, value uh, increased to 71%, but their sensitivity dropped to almost half, so 56.6%. So in this paper, this was kind of a disappointing paper in that this uh, assay, which initially in the introduction touts it to be a, a much more sensitive way of detecting cell-mediated immunity. Unfortunately, what they demonstrate is that um, this assay, the quantiferon CMV assay, seemed to be of limited value because of the low sensitivity and specificity values. and. They, they talk about how by modifying the threshold for the interferon gamma level, you may be able to get a better diagnostic accuracy. But overall, I, I think uh, this um, assay leaves uh, a lot of room for improvement. Well, I think you did a great job, Oscar, in, in highlighting this study. I know there's a lot of external push by the manufacturer that we should be using it more, and there was a lot of excitement about it. I've tried to use it and probably not in the way that it was labeled. I mean, when the studies, the initial studies were done, were in the high risk group, positive to negative to help you identify how long to use prophylaxis, which most of us use for six months. And I think the original outcome was like CMV disease. And, and so my take from this is that they're looking at viremia. And a lot of times we don't necessarily treat viremia until it hits a certain Threshold, so that so that may be one reason why this doesn't seem as exciting because they use sort of a standard risk, positive to positive group, and then they focused on the outcome of viremia, and not all viremia is the same. So I, I think that was one issue that I thought about in terms of trying to interpret, you know, what do we do next, and 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 rather than just as a clinician, just you know, blindly ordering tests like crazy, and then not understanding 
what they mean. And I, and I do think it is hard because they use so much depletional therapy induction, which is what a lot of U.S. centers use. So does that, you know, affect our ability to use the assay carefully or appropriately? So I'm not sure I have the answers, certainly, but I, you know, appreciate your comments and appreciate the, the, the amount of work you know, that they went through and whether there's an opportunity maybe to try an interventional trial where you're doing serial measurements and if it hits a threshold and you stop Profi and then say, oh, okay, what happens then? All right, then. Well, uh, thanks for uh, presenting and uh, I'll move on to the very last paper. This was a paper where I could say that I didn't know anything and now I know something, but which is great. And and I'll tell you why I didn't know anything. It's probably because when I went to medical school, we didn't learn about tortinovirus, but uh, this last paper is about tortinovirus for risk stratification of graft rejection infection by Constantin Dober and um, both the nephrology division and the Center for Urology at the Medical University of Vienna. Little known fact, my dad actually went to medical school there. So the reason I haven't heard about this virus is that it really wasn't discovered until 1997. And I, I was in medical school quite a bit earlier than that. So we never heard about it in microbiology. But this is a circular DNA virus. It's called an orphan virus because the, the TTV infection uh, or its presence doesn't have any known clinical disease. And apparently its replication is considered to be sort of under control of the adaptive immune response, meaning that 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 there may be sort of suppression of this viral replication uh, based on your T cell number or through T cell function. And so it's been proposed by others and, and mostly I think European studies that this virus or the presence of this virus in viral load is really sort of a surrogate of T cell function. So if your T cell function is aberrant, you might have a higher level of viral load. And again, there are a bunch of prior studies that I was totally unaware of uh, in um, transplant recipients that have correlated the viral load with the level of immunosuppressive therapy. Uh, and so the goal of this study was to see if by measuring TTV viral loads prospectively, if the group could identify sort of an optimal range of where this might actually have some clinic, clinic, uh, clinical feasibility. And they actually conducted a large uh, prospective study in kidney transplant center recipients at their center for almost two years. It was called the TVV POET study or the prediction of organ rejection study. And what they did is they serially obtained um, uh, plasma or blood and measured um, TTV virus in their lab by PCR. Their cohort was predominantly middle-aged, were men. The vast majority, 82%, were deceased donors, which is a little bit different than um, other programs where there might be more living donor. They had excellent graft survival rates, a significant delayed graft function rate in this cohort of not 32%, and a rejection rate of about 18%. And I want to say that they used what we would say in the U.S. as a European style of giving non-depletional induction with basiliximab followed by triple therapy. Some important points in this paper, and I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty, but give you the big 10,000 foot view is that 88% of individuals prior to transplant had detectable viral load. So I think we're all walking around with this. And I started wondering if this is like the ticking time bomb virus. You know, you have virus on your mind with corona. Is this something that we should all be worrying about? Is something going to happen? 
but apparently not. And um, some folks had viral loads that were sky high. The one of the highest after transplant was uh, eight times 10 to the eighth. So 800 million copies per mil and pre-transplant was only about 37, 30,000. And, and just about everybody was positive after transplant except for a couple of patients. So using some statistical analyses at different intervals over time and also utilizing uh, pre-rejection biopsy samples that they had about 14 days before the rejections, they only ended up having a small, about 18% of individuals with rejection of, of a cohort of almost 400, and they only had about 39 individuals that had pre-biopsies for rejection samples for TVV. And so they set up sort of thresholds for positive and negative predictive value based on the level of the virus. So if you had um, a negative predictive value, if your TTV level was greater than 10 to the seventh, you had a very high negative predictive value for rejection. And then they did the opposite for infection. They had about 785 infection events. It's kind of interesting to look at the tables that it shows you that not unsurprisingly in transplant kidneys, transplanted kidneys, bacterial infections are most common. Uh, and so they, when they're correlating to infection, they're not just looking at opportunistic infection, which is what we usually think when T cells are suppressed. And they had about 28% of the cases they collected post-transplant were opportunistic, but the vast majority were urinary tract infections in about 50% of their patients. And again, looking at the level of this virus replication over time, they were able to develop a threshold that if you had TTV that was greater than 10 to the 10th copies per mil, you had a high predictive value of having infection. So what does this mean? Well, first of all, not knowing about this virus and the fact that it's there gives you a sense that this is not a virus that will be affected by concomitant meds. So one of the issues with things like EBV and CMV is there's a lot of intervening management strategies, including with CMV prophylaxis. So I, th I know sometimes we say, oh, well, we can use BK, their BK is positive, they're overimmunosuppressed. This seems to be a more direct way of measuring overimmunosuppression by viral load. So kudos to them, big study, um, you know, a very carefully done um, cohort study, but Again, the, the cautions here is that the, the numbers of rejections were very, very small in comparison to the uh, infection events. So the negative predictive value because of the prevalence, not surprisingly, is really quite good. But the positive predictive value, whether you looked at infection or rejection based on their thresholds, uh, never got better than 50%. So maybe not a great predictor from a positive perspective. Um, this is a single center study. They had a high level of DGF. They didn't really talk about viral kinetics. Um, for people that don't reject, does this just go up? And does it correlate well as you taper immunosuppression over the first six months? They follow these people for a year. That would be an interesting um, question to ask. And this assay hasn't been validated, obviously. This is an in-house assay that was developed uh, by this group. So perhaps more to come and more. I, these are always the projects you like to have when you're involved with clinical trials because it means you have more work. <laughs> okay, Roz, um, I think we're right at the end of this. Um, what great papers this month, a lot of variety, a lot of um, real translational science. And um, Well, great uh, to have our latest intern, Oscar Serrano. You'd yes, thank you, Oscar. Thanks for being on the call. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. You did a great job and um, enjoy. The, I think we get you back later on in the year, right? Yes, sir. At some point. So um, look forward to that. And um, we're going to sign off now and we'll see you in September. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's AMJ transplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.